Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, guitarist Omar Mesa, best known as an original member of one of the all-time great funk soul bands mandrel along with the wilson brothers at its core he shined with the group during its ascent and peak from 1970 to 1973 that included the band's self-titled debut mandrel is composite truth and just outside of town albums that spawned tracks like get it ape is high hang loose which went to number 25 in the rb chart fence walk which went to number 19 mango meat and two sisters of mercy Incorporating jazz and Latin musical elements, during that period, Mandrill also gained acclaim as one of the most original and fierce live acts. Having left the band in the mid-1970s, Mesa has continued to play, record, and live life on its own terms. His new single is titled, I Love the Way You Read My Mind. Omar, thank you for joining me. How are you? Hi, Scott. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Thanks for uh, spending time with us today. Appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thank you. I uh, tracked you down over some time, but uh, I'm finally glad that you, you know, got the record out and we could uh, make this happen. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> I just had to make one correction on, um, and, and probably most people don't know that on Just Outside of Town, I really only uh, contributed my song Aspiration Flame on that. 
And um, I think it was Dougie Rodriguez who played Mango Meat. I've performed those all those uh, songs with them later on uh, when we did some tours. I came back and played some uh, those tunes from that album live. But uh, the actual album, I'm really mainly one through three, you know, Fence Walk and them. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, we'll get into some more of those details. I appreciate that. Um, setting the record straight. That's uh, truth and rhythm. We want all the truth. So gotta be truthful, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Omar, where are you today? I'm in Fort Lauderdale, where I live. Yeah. And um, now, originally, you're from uh, Cuba, and then grew up in New York, right? So, um, yeah. how did you gravitate toward music in the beginning? Well, uh, from I was born in Havana, and actually moved to uh, you know. Parents brought me to Hoboken, New Jersey, where I grew up for the first like teenage year, up to teenage years. And uh, for the first 10 years, I was really, I only heard Latin music until I was 10 years old. That's all, that's all I heard. And, you know, looking back, uh, sometimes I think maybe that's where I got my funk from, you know, because there's so much syncopation in Latin music. And... Um, then I, I got turned on by a cousin, a little older cousin, to American music on the radio. And I thought, then I used to sit by the radio at night. I wouldn't watch TV, man. <laughs> I would just sit. I started with the doo-ops, get a job, and all those songs. You know? And then Jackie Wilson, uh, Chuck Berry, all the uh, soul acts. And then, of course, uh, leading into the, the Beatles, Frankie Valli, you, you name it. Those were my influences. And then when the Beatles came out, I said, man, you could actually play a guitar and, and do a band, you know? <laughs> so so uh, we formed a band in Hoboken, friends of mine. And we had this little teenage band. We were like the hit of Hoboken. We were like the, uh, the Beatles of Hoboken, so to speak. <laughs> and so those are the early start. How old were you when you moved to uh, America? Six. Six years old. Right down, the, right down the street from where uh, Sinatra grew up. Uh, he was way, way long gone by, <laughs> by then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've spent some time in Hoboken. It's got a great view of the city from there. Beautiful. It's got the best city, uh, best view of the city, you know? Yeah. I, I've always said that to people. Sinatra Park right there. It's a beautiful view of the city. Who were some of your uh, early guitar influences or heroes? Well, definitely Chuck Berry and uh, George Harrison and B.B. King were the first three, I would say. Then the Stones came. And then, of course, Jimmy and then uh, and Carlos Santana, of course, later on in the 60s. Did you have any lessons or were you self-taught? I took lessons for a couple of years, just basic stuff, you know, just reading it was kind of academic and on my own, actually, I started learning chords on my own and formed the band. And so uh, I really, I'm really not a well-schooled musician like people go to colleges and all that, you know. Who was uh, the first live performance that you saw that really kind of blew your mind? Well, geez, the first one. It's hard to, hard to, it's hard to remember. I remember um, seeing great blues at the uh, 
World's Fair, I think it was, 64. I think the Paul, Paul Butterfield Blues Band I saw there. And uh, in Hoboken, there was a black club called Zanzibar. And uh, my buddy, who became our drummer, lived right above there. And we used to hang out outside the Zanzibar and listen to the, uh, the Chitlin Circuit bands coming through, man. That's, that, that was, didn't see them, but they, we heard them, you know. Um, I mean, I saw Ray Charles in the 66, and I saw, uh, believe it or not, the first tour of the Who and the Cream that same year. Uh, I still remember that. And they were opening up for Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, which I thought. Of course, I, I used to go to the Fillmore and listen and see the you know, Allman Brothers, Pink Floyd, Vanilla Fudge, you name them. I, I, I was there. And then so when we finally made it there, it was like, oh, wow. <laughs> it was great. So how many bands did you uh, play in before, you know, connecting with Mandrill? What was the path that got you up? you know, just before getting with Mandrill? That was, that was the only band. We called ourselves the VJs, and um, we won a Battle of Bands contest, and um, this brother, um, I forgot his name. Jeez, anyway, he, uh, he, he signed us to his little uh, record company and stuff. He got us to play at the Audubon Ballroom uh, of all places. Uh, I mean, these little white kids, I guess, you know, Latino and white kids coming, uh, and uh, we rocked the house, man, <laughs> because we we were eclectic in a way like Mandrill. You know, we, we played James Brown and uh, Sam and Dave, and, and we'll play uh, the Stones, you know, we had a well-rounded uh, repertoire. Did you feel more at home, uh, you know, playing rhythm or lead or both? I like both. I love rhythm, you know. I love groove. I love the groove of rhythm. And lead is, you know, you just get to express yourself and let it fly, you know. So how did you connect with Mandrill? Uh, was it, you know, through the Wilson brothers or somebody else or what happened? Well, uh, what happened was, um, what happened in, uh, when I saw... Uh, Carlos Santana play in um, the Fillmore. I decided, man, that's what I want to do. I want, I want, I want to be a musician. And uh, for the next year, I, I went to all these auditions that I found through the Village Voice, you know. And uh, that's how I met them. One day there was this ad, and I went rolled up to their their mom's uh, beauty salon in Bed-Stuy. <laughs> and uh, they, had, they had the hair dryers pulled away and the amps out. <clears throat> and I said, and I got a really great vibe just right off the bat from the brothers, you know, Wilson brothers. And they already had Charlie Padro on drums. They already had Bundy Sinek on bass and coffee on keyboards. I was like the last piece, I think, that they added, you know. Uh, of course, the brothers... And uh, when I saw the Kungas and Timbales, I freaked. I said, wow, man, this is, this is I love this, you know. And so uh, we started jamming, and, and man, it's just the vibe was there. It was just, uh, they told me later on that, you know, they interviewed a bunch of, auditioned a bunch of guitarists, and that 
perhaps I didn't have the most chops from even than the cats that they brought in, but the, the vibe, the feel was solid between us. And so that's, that's how it started. And what was your impression of the Wilsons? Um, you know, what was their vibe like? And uh, was, you know, Rick sort of the leader or how'd that work? Well, they have the different, each one was a leader in their own right in a different way. You know, Rick was more of a business leader. Carlos was like a musical leader. And Lou was like in all that, you know, he was our spokesman. And uh, I learned a lot from, from the brothers. You know, Lou taught me more about jazz and jazz artists that exposed me to that. And he was like a big kid, you know, loved him. May he rest in peace, you know. Uh, it was a really heartwarming um, vibe, I got, to, I got to tell you. And maybe because they had Panamanian West Indian roots and I was Cuban and it just kind of gelled like at the heart level and the feel level. It was so, it was solid. I was happy when they, you know, they called me and I said, I got the gig, you know. And so I had to travel from Hoboken, the best style. Like I, I think I had a day gig. I was a computer programmer, believe it or not, as a, you know, at the time still. And, uh, Quit. I quit and I started playing with them like four nights a week at the, on Filton Street. Uh, what was that? The Blue Coronet. Blue Coronet. We started playing there. About how old were you? Well, about 22, I guess. Yeah, 22. And did they have a record uh, deal yet or no? No. And I don't know how we got it <laughs> other than... Um, Somebody knew Bo Ray Fleming, who wound up being our manager, and he got us um, into Columbia Studios on 30th Street, I think it is, gigantic studio, and we did a demo for a few of, a, a few of our tunes for Columbia, and um, they already had Santana, so they passed on us, and then, but Bo uh, got us to Polydor, and they signed us. So were you playing originals right from the get-go or mostly covers or what was the repertoire like? Oh yeah. Well, when we played live, I think we threw in some, some covers, like, you know, maybe mercy, mercy, mercy or something, stuff like that, you know, but uh, mainly originals. Yeah. Hmm. So what do you remember about the experience of recording that first record? Well, it was electric ladyland and so it was mind-blowing you know to go in there unfortunately it was a few months after uh jimmy had passed away and uh we did get to meet uh eddie kramer who was his manager and engineer we had an actual uh i think a former drummer for the a band called uh, what they called blues something dave palmer he was the, our engineer, and Bo Ray was our producer, and uh, so it was, it was really an exciting time in the, the Electric Ladyland Studios, an amazing place, amazing studio. Have you been there? I have not. I would love to. They have a, they have a mural that runs way, way along the wall, all the way like from one studio to the other, an amazing mural that they have there, and 
even in the bathroom, I was psychedelic with Jimmy. <laughs> things all over the place, like, you know, uh, montage, things like that. It's fantastic. Later on, uh, actually, about a year after that, when we did our second album there, I got to jam with Mitch Mitchell, Jimmy, Jimmy's drummer, and uh, Dougie Roush was there from Santana. We were just uh, fooling around, having a jam, the three of us, so that, that was fun. <laughs> wow. Um, that first record, were there a lot of takes, or you just kind of, you know, hit it and quit it? or There weren't many takes, man. No, we, um, we did maybe a couple. I, I don't remember us doing really more than two takes on just about any song. And then we, yeah. yeah, that's it. I had my uh, Gibson SG. <laughs> my Gibson SG back then. Oh, yeah, Charlie Padro, Bundy Sinek. I'm still in touch with Charlie. Oh, yeah. That's funny because I always looked at that cut, that inside, like, mandrels evolve, evolving into us, you know, and then other people saying, oh, no, you guys were becoming the mandrel. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of funny. And uh, so. Well, so, well, speaking of that, Omar, uh, you know, where did the sort of uh, conceptual aspect of mandrel come from? Well, we were so eclectic that it's hard to, that was in a way, uh, we were too eclectic for the record company. That's why in the third album, they said, you know, you got to pick, we want to hit, you got to pick a direction. Because if you listen to the first two albums, I mean, we we had gospel, we had uh, all, all kinds of stuff going on, Latin jazz, well, Peace and Love, the 17-minute suite, is African drumming breakdown and Latin jazz as well. And rock, just straight-up rock, you know. I'm, I'm, I was sampled by uh, the end of the end of the, one of the movements there uh, from Peace and Love. It was sampled by Kanye and Eminem. We, well, we've been for back as uh, being uh, also we've been sampled over 200 times. I, yeah, I, I, it has like a cinematic scope, some of that music, to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree, yeah. Some of the tunes are, were like that, Symphonic Revolution. Uh, Moroccan Nights is almost like a, a movie uh, tune, you know? You listen to that one. Well, did you guys ever get approached uh, or consider, you know, soundtrack stuff at that time? Well, well, after I left the band, later on in the seventies, they did get they did the um, the soundtrack for the first Muhammad Ali movie, The Greatest. Yeah. yeah. So when that first record came out, how did you feel about it? I mean, did you uh, hear any tunes on the radio, and how did you feel hearing yourself on the radio? Well, it was uh, it was very exciting, of course, and um, yeah, we were being played on the. Uh, like WNEW FM, we never made it to AM pretty much. That's why we, I guess, had a cult following, developed a cult following from our live performances and stuff. But uh, we're on WNEW FM, uh, Scott Muni, he, he would play that whole 17 minute uh, piece, sweet piece in love, you know, I heard that. And uh, it, it was an amazing um, experience uh, on our first tour. Because you know you, you you the opening you're the opening act, 
and nobody knows you. And we open up for Mata Hoople on the east side with the Fillmore East. And then we'd open up for Miles Davis in the Fillmore West. And um, Detroit played with John Mayall underneath the, you know, the undercard, so to speak. And But the amazing, the most amazing um, lesson in marketing that I got from my first tour was Hawaii, Honolulu, Hawaii. We were promoted by this fellow who owned the radio station. And for about a month before we went there, he played us to death at his station and he promoted a concert for us. And we headlined and we sold out an 8,000 seat arena when we were like, nobody knew us in the States. It, it was like, wow, this is amazing. We were signing autographs in the street. So, <laughs> it was like, all of a sudden, boom. Nobody knows us in the States. And here, like, was, you know, whoo, who's this? You know? <laughs> hmm. That was fascinating. How, how did you feel about the the rigors of, of, you know, touring, being on the road? And how did you feel on stage? Were you comfortable on stage? or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had a great time on stage. I, I was kind of like uh, interacted with Lou a lot because uh, I was to the right of Lou all the time and with the Kungas. And he was, when I would take a solo, Lou would come over and do all kinds of things like to get me more going more, you know, and stuff like that. So it was great. And I, I love the rhythm. I love the rhythm. I love the breakdowns of uh, rhythm. Like the, the first song that we recorded, a mandrill tune. So, so uh, you know, bring back to my Latin roots, you know, that percussion, I just love it. <clears throat> Did you rehearse a lot? Before we got signed, we rehearsed six nights a week. Was, and, and, and even after, actually, we then got a loft in uh, Chelsea, and we were there every day, every day rehearsing at night. Hmm. So when the second record came out, um, you guys got a, a taste of more success because um, Get It All went to 37. Um, and um, Ape is High, you know, what a great opening track. Um, love the guitar strumming riff and the wah-wah stuff mm -hmm. you do on that. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah. So I just kind of came out a little fiercer and funkier, I would say, on that record than the first one. Yeah, funkier and then it still had a lot of elements of rock in there, you know. It's still it was like a mix of funk and rock, I would say. Yeah. So at that point you're starting to go out on bigger like festivals, right? Because I remember oh yeah, I didn't get I didn't get to go to any of them, but I've seen, you know, a lot of uh posters and things, you know, uh huge right. bills with mandrel. Yeah. You know, Ohio players and just, you know, tons of groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was in 73 that it was really exploded. We were, you know, playing to 85,000 people, <laughs> like at uh, the Duff concert, RFK Stadium. We headlined over Buddy Miles and Rare Earth. And, and Funkadelics, uh, they would open up for us, man, in the Spectrum in Philly, 15,000 people. We played there another time with... Um, Farrell Sanders and Nina Simone. That was amazing. You know, we, we got a lot of opportunity to play in different scenarios. We opened up at Duke Ellington, believe it or not, at Avery Fisher Hall. We played there with a 90-piece symphony another time. Um, that's that's why I was talking about the ecl eclectic part of this band. We were like a world music band. 
if you look at if you listen to the three albums you can say it's a world music calypso you know i mean you name it is on there yeah so that was uh how much of that was a conscious effort to bring all that in versus just organically it just kind of was i think I, I think it was more like you said more organically because each of the each of the fellas had their own things that they wanted to bring, and then we'd all work on it. We'd all like uh, collaborate on the arrangements, and you know, throw it about. No, that thing's so good. Let's throw that. Let's do it right this way. I mean, we'd go on for hours <laughs> on one tune, and for days as well <laughs> to sort it out, get it as best as we we, we can. But uh, you know, Polk Street. I mean, that's. Uh, they're West Indian roots, you know, they, and so they, that's part of them, uh, the Wilson brothers. And so that's, that's how that came about, for instance, that's, you know, that's organic like that. Who were a couple of the groups among those you mentioned, or maybe some you didn't mention yet, uh, that you thought just killed it back then, you know, besides you guys? Oh, well, Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah, for sure. And when we opened up for Stevie Wonder, so, you know. and then we opened up for the Allman Brothers. That's a whole other scenario, but great band, you know. We opened up for B.B. King. So, I mean, we, we just loved, we loved all kinds of, of artists. And we're lucky to, we got lucky to play with a lot of them. I just ha- I was just talking to uh, Rusty Allen, and he was talking about Sly and the Family Stone being on the bill with Mandrill. Um, do you remember playing with them? Well, I I I love Sly. As a matter of fact, to me, they were the first. I mean, James Brown, yeah, but Sly, man, he he took funk to a new level, you know. Um, well, I the only time I recall, and I met Sly briefly at a, at a recording studio in California, but the only time I recall that we actually played, uh, supposed to play, was he was supposed to play at Randall's Island in New York to 85,000 people. But I believe he, he didn't make that gig. And mm-hmm. if there were others that we played, I don't remember, because I don't remember all the shows, man. <laughs> I forgot a lot of the, I forgot most of the shows I played, so. Well, hopefully they didn't riot at that one when he didn't show. That's the one that there was almost a riot, man. So people who were there, I've seen on Facebook people talking about it. Oh, yeah, I was there. <laughs> and we were on this little, little stage, very, you know, very, it wasn't like the stones at Altamont where you're up high, you know. <laughs> and uh, so that was something. I loved, I loved Sly's music, man. Uh, Thank you for letting me be myself. And that's one of the funkiest tunes ever. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a landmark tune right there. Yeah. Um, so. Can I say how- one more thing? Oh, sorry. I think we were influenced by that, by the way, because at the end of, um, end of Apis Hive, when we, when we were getting people to go uh, high, saying hi <laughs> in our shows we'd have the audience say uh singing along you know shouting along hi with us i think that came from i want to take you higher whether it was conscious or unconscious it was there you know <laughs> truth and rhythm okay 
They always been, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> hey, you know what? All the bands borrowed here and there from each other, and that's what of helped pu- push it all forward, too. Yeah, everybody borrows from each other. I mean, uh, I remember uh, talking to Coffee from um, Andrew just a little while back. He said that Maurice White, uh, you know, may he rest in peace, in his autobiography, he, uh, he mentioned us, and, and Coffee remembers that after we played with them, that then they added the percussion that we had, you know, similar with Kungas and Tambalas, that they added them after they'd seen us play, you know. So, like, it's like that. Goes back and forth. The one group we didn't mention that I always thought I had some similarities with Mandrill, too, was War. Oh, yeah, sure. Definitely. Same vibe. Absolutely. And even some of the uh, Mandrill music I hear, I think, some Chicago influence. Chicago, you got it. That was another one. Yeah, I mean, we have so many influences and uh, people describing us in so many ways. That was one of the names that came up. Santana, Chicago, you know, they, 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 these would come up all the time, different, uh, for lack of a better term. Yeah, now, how sp- spontaneous were the shows, you know, for people that haven't been to one or w- weren't able to go to one back then? What was the experience like? How can you describe it? Well, it, it, it evolved over time. Um, like I said, the first first tour, we weren't known other than all of a sudden, boom, in Hawaii. And um, then things started to grow. Uh, and and we, like we sold out Carnegie Hall and, uh, you know, being a local band. And, and selling out that place, it was like really amazing. So it, it, it was very exciting, but the excitement started to grow. And then I'll tell you one thing, because in night and well, also do, doing TV shows, amazing to do Soul or Soul and Soul Train, Soul on Channel 13 of New York and uh, Soul Train. And then one thing was at the end of 72, we got invited by Randy Weston to go play in Tangiers, Morocco, at a jazz festival, and also in Spain. And uh, there we played Hubert Laws, and they played in the bull ring. We were supposed to play in that bull ring, but it was the night we played. We wound up going inside to some burlesque theater, believe it or not, <laughs> that, uh, that they had there because it was too windy, and so the sand would be blowing up all over the place. But the, the point of that, one of the things that we took away from that, well, apart from the outfits on Composite Truth, <laughs> we brought all those, all those clothes back, uh, was that we got introduced to this band, local uh, tribe called the Jalala. And uh, we were backstage. Backstage was where the bull re- bulls were kept, you know. It's these stone walls, gigantic rooms, and they were in there before they go out to play, jamming for like 45 minutes before they go out to play. And we were just digging the groove. They have, there's just six of them. It's a, uh, an expert, like an experienced older fella. And there was a, the, the round drum, I forget the name of it, a flute, and uh, the clockabars, which we used on Hang Loose. We brought that back too. That, those spoons, you know? And uh, so what we took from that, though, is that 
what they did was at the jamming there, then they strolled out to the stage jamming and playing. And by the time they got to the stage, the whole audience was crazed already from it. And if it, that's when we changed. That's, a, that's what we're going to do from now on. And so if you see like when we go on to Soul Train or other some of these shows, and anybody who went to our shows after that point, you would see us coming from the back of the stage, the seven of us, each with a percussion instrument, jamming, get to the stage. And uh, it was like, you, you're starting off where almost sometimes it would end off in some other shows, you know? So you could only take it higher from there. <laughs> yeah, the um, intensity of Hang Loose on that Soul Train performance. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable and that back then fun. you know they played live on soul train they stopped oh, doing yeah. that after oh a while. yeah we oh yeah we played live man that was live yeah <laughs> maybe they uh started lip syncing because you guys were so intense they're like we gotta change this <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know that was great though yes definitely great classic um but did you guys usually uh, follow the set list pretty much whatever it was, or did you kind of just, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We had a set list pretty much. That's it. Yeah. It was never, I can't ever remember a time where we just like alter it in the middle of the show. You know? Did any of those uh, people like Stevie Wonder or whoever might also have been on the bill ever come up and play with you guys? No, I wish that would have been awesome. I got to shake his hand afterwards, but uh, <laughs> that's about it. What Mandrill is, what was the idea behind that title, do you think? I guess it's like... Um, we're still here. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from, to be honest with you. And uh, the the cover, it was interesting because it was done by an artist down in Tribeca. And we actually had to pose for the inside, that inside cover. And I still had long hair back then. And, and he would select uh, something about the personality of each person. He tried to. And I was, because I'm a Libra. It was like Libra the dreamer. He came. That was his idea that's what mandrel is but uh that was also another eclectic album the label must have really been behind you guys though because there were really nice packages with gatefolds you know and yeah yeah well kind of the sign of the times like then though pretty much you know a lot of the bands had that kind of leeway yeah. because it was part of the art part of the art was uh getting an album and looking at the liner notes, opening it up, you know, that, that was a, a great thing. Uh, there's the credits who's and all that stuff, which is gone today pretty much, but that was a great time for that. On that record, uh, Mantle is, uh, you actually wrote two of the tracks, Central Park and The Sun Must Go Down. Mm -hmm. um, Sun Must Go Down, real uh, kind of nice jazzy vibe yeah. to that. Yeah, Jazzy, sort of Chicago. I mean, Carlos Wilson was great with, as an arranger, you know, and he come up, and Coffee too. Would, Coffee would come up with a string uh, arrangement uh, for for uh, Central Park at the end. Uh, 
And by the way, Ron Carter, a great bassist, he just bowed the intro. The very it's a very slow intro. And we had uh, Al Brown was our producer, who was a viola player who was contracted to play in a lot of sessions. He knew all the session dudes in New York, and I got of all people, Ron Carter to come and just bow that intro, you know. And but then, like I said, Coffee uh, did the greatest string arrangement, and like Carlos did a great horn arrangement for the song Must Go Down. Central Park, but also um, other other cats like um, Coffee did the uh, uh, breakdowns of like the organ and it's almost classical breakdown in the, in the middle. Um, with Mandrel, I mean, it's hard to really call out one element as being like the most special, but I will say just, you know, the percussion, like you mentioned, the, the organ and keyboards, the guitar and the horns. I mean, all of it was just kicking. Yeah, multi-instrumentalist. Multi I mean, Carlos played about seven, eight instruments by himself, you know. And uh, like, a, like on Polk Street, all of a sudden he's got an alto sax, you know. <laughs> I mean, that, the timbales, the flute, the great, great, he was great on flute and coffee playing vibes, uh, apart from the B3, you know. And the percussion, you know, boosted by the, the rhythm section. Yeah. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.